0: Hello, and welcome to Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We are going to hear stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Social Workers Rise. It is your host, Catherine here. I am so honored to be here with Daniel Mangler. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. I'm going to tell you just a quick little bio about Daniel and who he is and why he's so amazing, and I'm so excited that you are a guest here. So Dan is a school social worker. Should I call you Dan or Daniel? Which one do you prefer?
1: Either one works. I'm fine with the. Uh, actually, most of my friends just call me by my last name, Megler. So you can just call me Megler, or you can call me whichever, whatever works for you.
0: Okay, we're friends here. I'll call you Megler then. <laughs> <laughs> so he is a school social worker, a therapist in private practice, host of the "Not Allowed to Die" podcast about mental health, and the mental health advisor for Pause for Patrick, which is a nonprofit organization. Dedicated to bringing the love of animals to the people who need it most. Pause for Patrick's help. Pause for Patrick helps young people with mental health issues to acquire emotional support animals and connects them with therapists who will write pro bono ESA letters for those who qualify. That is so powerful, Megler. I'm, i used to calling people by their first names. It's going to take me a minute to call you Megler. <laughs> But I'm so glad, um, about the work that you do and welcome. Um, tell us, you know, a little bit about like, how did you get started in, in, you know, specifically like with therapy and then like working for pause for Patrick.
1: Well, I was one of those people who grew up with a family, um, where every diagnosis in the DSM was represented by an aunt, an uncle, a cousin. So mental health was always, uh, near and dear to my heart. And uh, so out of college, I thought I was going to do something in the political world, but I found that direct service really spoke to me. And my mother was a teacher, grandmother was a teacher, sister's a teacher. So social work in schools became where like the chocolate meets the peanut butter. And it just was this amazing fit. And um, in my work in schools, I had the opportunity to work with Patrick Romer, who was one of my students for many years. And um, unfortunately, when he ended up uh, dying, his family decided to create an organization to honor his memory and what he cared about so much, which was his relationship with his dog, Cece. And Cece was there for him in ways that no therapist could be, no friend could be. And so they said, how can we bring this to other people? That's what Patrick would really want. And so I was honored that they asked me to step on and be the mental health advisor for that organization. And so since joining them in August of 2020, that's when the organization started, I've done a deep dive into learning all about emotional support animals, how to write letters and how to teach others about writing letters. So I'm so excited to come on here tonight and maybe answer a few questions about that.
0: Yeah, that's awesome because ESA letters are a mystery to a lot of us, (laughs) which is alarming because we're the ones that's supposed to know how to write them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm glad that we're having this conversation. And first, I just want to clarify, what is the difference between an ESA emotional support animal versus a therapy animal?
1: So a therapy dog is a dog that has special training to go out in public and be non-reactive. And so they have to pass a series of tests. Sometimes they'll take them places like Home Depot or whatnot and make sure that they're not going to react to other dogs, not going to react to people. And there's a certification process. There are a number of organizations across the country that certify. And you have to have insurance if you have a therapy dog. And so um, they are allowed into some places, and they will come and do visitations to schools, elderly homes, hospitals, and they really give tremendous benefits to the people who they work with. An ESA requires no training. An ESA is just an animal that, being in the presence of it, helps a person with a mental health disorder to have a reduction in the frequency, intensity, or duration of their symptoms. So you can have an emotional support tarantula, you can have an emotional support goldfish, the animal itself doesn't have to do anything. But a big misconception is that your ESA only applies to your dwelling. You can't bring your ESA to the supermarket, to a restaurant, anywhere else. It's only for where you live. Now, there are some states that have some um, added protections put on there. Like California will say in certain circumstances, a person can bring their ESA to work, but in most states, it really applies only to your dwelling. And there's one other kind, or there are two actually other kind of um, therapy animals that people often think of and talk about. one is a, a service animal. And there is such a thing as a psychiatric service animal. And a lot of times right now, airlines are requiring that in order for you to be able to bring your dog on, it might have to be a psychiatric service animal. And a service animal means it has very specific training to help remediate a symptom of a disability. So if a person has, say, epilepsy, the service animal might be trained to lick that person's face before an epileptic attack so they can take medication or do anything else like that. So that's a very, very high bar. And the cost for getting a psychiatric service animal is usually about twelve dollars to $15,000. Whereas, again, like your ESA can just be any any animal off the street. And the last animal I'll mention is facility animals. Um, Facility animals are a subset of like therapy dogs where they, but the difference is they just stay at a particular facility. So instead of going around and visiting places, some people at um, a hospital or a therapy group might have a facility dog. And the big difference is facility animals can work more. So therapy dogs are only supposed to work one hour a day every other day, whereas that facility dog could be on for several hours every day, but it's because it's less stressful for them to be in a comfortable environment.
0: Okay. Interesting. I had no idea there was all sorts of different types, yeah, a but it pretty makes big s- range, complete yeah. sense. Yeah. It makes complete sense. I'm wondering what type of people benefit most from having ESA animals?
1: I think particularly like we see at Poster Patrick, a lot of people who have anxiety, particularly as social anxiety, people who have difficulty with um, racing thoughts in the evenings, because again, so frequently, no matter how great your therapist is, like, I, I think I'm a pretty decent therapist, but I'm not going to answer the phone at three in the morning. I'm just not. <laughs> Whereas, boundaries. You know, exactly. That cat, that dog, whichever, that chinchilla, they can be there when you're having those racing thoughts and help you with grounding. Um, so again, a lot of times people with different kinds or, or a person with social anxiety, they can venture out of their home with their animal. And so frequently when you're out on a walk with a dog, people will, they'll make eye contact with the dog. It makes it easier to make those conversations happen. One thing that uh, some of the research by Dr. Janet Oi Gerlach of the University of Toledo has found that shocked me is that cats are actually slightly more effective than dogs in helping with the depression symptoms. So for people with depression, you know, it sounds like I'm kind of a dog person, so I was rooting for the dogs. But it turns out cats are really incredible as well as, well as emotional support animals.
0: Interesting. That is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just to be clear, when we're talking about ESA animals, emotional support animals, these are this is for allowing them to be in your home, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, I'm thinking for people who are renting, there's a lot Mm -hmm. of stipulations and laws around, oh, no animals allowed, but does the, do the ESA, do they get, I don't know, special treatment? Do they, how does Mm -hmm. that work?
1: Yeah. So according to FHA, you know, and like the federal housing authority and HUD If your animal is an emotional support animal, it means they cannot charge you pet fees and they can't restrict which breeds and whatnot you can have. So these are big things as barriers that keep people from having the animals that they need to be with. So they also can't put like, for example, a size restriction. Some places will say, well, your animal can't be over 30 pounds, but if it's an emotional support animal, and that's what I've worked with so many people with PTSD and they might say, I need a bigger animal to feel safe. and so. I'll have to write that in the letter. And then the landlord will say, okay, I have to accept this. And again, it's not the animal that gets registered. It's the individual with the mental health disorder that is saying, okay, I have this disorder. It's kind of like for a person who has um, a parking placard. You know, again, Mm -hmm. it's not your car that gets registered. It's you as the person who has the disability. And then whatever car you're in, you can go to that place and park. So similarly, it doesn't matter if I change from a cat to a dog at a certain point because it's me with my disability that's being registered.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And I'm <clears throat> and I'm wondering in your work with therapists, what has been the major objection or the thing that has kind of driven them away and saying like, uh, I don't know about writing this ESA ESA letter.
1: The uh, therapists that I've talked to are worried about some kind of liability, but I have never heard of a case where a therapist has been found liable for anything that an animal has done that, where they've written a letter. So it really strains my imagination of how that could even be possible. So if you have an emotional support peacock and you come to me and you say, hey, can you write a letter? And I write a letter for that peacock and you to live in that your dwelling and the peacock escapes and it goes peck someone in the face. I, as the therapist, am no more liable than if I told you, hey, it's, it's a good idea to go do yoga and get some exercise. And if you slipped and fell on for your yoga mat, I am not responsible for what happened to you. All I'm doing is I am saying that in my clinical judgment, you might benefit from contact with an animal. That's literally all the letter is saying. The letter is not saying that you will benefit. In order for me to write a letter for someone, what I need legally is I need to have a relationship with them where I'm familiar with their history and their their disability. I need to believe in my clinical judgment that they have a disability where, which could have some of its symptoms lessened by an animal. So one of my clients that I wrote a letter for He got a dog and rather than reducing his anxiety it increased his anxiety it doesn't mean it wasn't valid for me to write the letter he didn't know until he got the dog and so you know paul sir patrick tried a bunch of different things to get him extra training and whatnot it wasn't successful and the animal had to be rehomed but that doesn't mean it was not the appropriate choice to try it because he really wanted to try it does that make sense
0: yes yeah that makes sense and i just i need to wrap my head around this so with an esa animal are there any rules around, like, sizes? Because I'm thinking, okay, because you mentioned the peacock. Mm-hmm. And if I'm saying this peacock makes me feel better mm-hmm. and I want to have it in my studio apartment,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I mean, it it just, I, it, I don't know. I'm just not...
1: But, and this, is, this is the challenge that why so many landlords are trying to put up barriers about this. Yeah. Because again, if you own a building, you don't want to try to rent it out to someone after there's smell of cat pee in the carpet. Like that's a really hard thing. And so if I have my emotional support water buffalo and I've got it in my, my apartment and it does damage, I am still responsible for the damage that it did. So okay. the landlord can try to recoup that damage. So I have to, it's again, for many people, they like to use music as a way of soothing themselves but it's not okay for them to blast their music at 3am. Everyone should have the right to have music. Everyone should have the right to have an animal, but you are responsible as an individual for not infringing on anybody else's rights. And if you can't do that, then you're probably not a great candidate to have an emotional support animal, because again, it's about living in community with other people. So I paused for Patrick, that's one of the things we're doing when we assess people. For example, uh, for a lot of college students, they, would, they might like to have an emotional support animal in their dorm. But again, we'll say, would this be really the best thing for a dog to be cooped up in a little dorm? Maybe you need to think about a guinea pig or a chinchilla or, you know, a cat, something that might fit better. So we never say no at Pause or Patrick, but we might say not yet. Let's think about this a little bit and both brainstorm some other ideas because we really just want this to be a long-term successful partnership. And as a therapist, that's really, we want to always focus on letting the client have the autonomy to say, what is right for me? What's good for me? but also just sharing some of our wisdom of what we've seen work for other people. So we're not, we're not the gatekeepers, but we are, you know, giving ideas to brainstorm with.
0: Okay. This makes me feel better. Now my anxiety is less (laughs) because I'm like, wait a minute. I don't know if I could honestly write this CSA letter for somebody. Okay. So you're not going to have a horse in Mm -hmm. an apartment because it's going to disturb your neighbors Mm -hmm. downstairs. And same thing with the dog, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's, in a dorm room, I'm thinking it could bark, it could mm-hmm. disturb a lot of the people. So, okay, so this makes a lot more sense. Thank you for for clearing that up. <laughs> yeah.
1: and, and so, the other, like as I say, when we're writing these letters, we might put in a couple of things about here is a symptom, like this person suffers from insomnia, and therefore, when they have a cat in their place, it helps them to fall asleep. So, especially with the colleges, they will often ask, is there a major life function that is impaired if this person doesn't have the animal? And yeah, I would say sleep is a major thing, or I would say the ability to think and concentrate. These are major life impairments if we can't do those. And so again, I'm not saying that this person, it's always all the time. I'm just saying this person might benefit if they have that in my clinical judgment. Boom. And so that's really all it takes. Some people ask, well, how many, how long do you have to have been working with the client? And the question is really just long enough in your clinical judgment to feel like, you, again, you know the history, there is a disability, and you can say, think the person might benefit. So there is no hard and fast rule of, it has to be three sessions or six sessions. It's really just what, what, as a clinician. I used to work in the emergency room and I would have to make a determination in 15 or 20 minutes if a person was gonna be able to go home or go upstairs. This is a lot lower stakes than that. <laughs> so right. yeah, if I, I feel like if I could make that determination.
0: Hey, it's Catherine here. I hope you are enjoying this episode. We're going to take a quick break to listen to these ads from our sponsors. If you're planning to take the BBS Law and Ethics exam, the ASWB Master's or Clinical Licensure exam, or if you're studying for the MFT exam, then you need a proven program that can help you understand the exam questions and pass with confidence. If this is you, I highly recommend the Therapist Development Center. I personally use TDC to pass my law and ethics and clinical exams and found the program provided me with everything I needed to pass with confidence. TDC's program integrates various ways of learning in an organized fashion, containing all of the information you need to pass without the overwhelm. And now bonus, TDC is also offering a library of continuing education courses that fulfill your license renewal requirements and will support you in your career development. If this sounds like something that you need, visit their website, therapistdevelopmentcenter.com and use the code SWRISE10 at checkout to receive 10% off any of their CE courses including their brand new course, On the Edge of Life, An Introduction to Suicidality. You can also check out the link in the show notes.
1: But the best letters are really coming from people who have a long-term relationship with the client. Because I mean, if, so if you've known a client for a few months, even, I could knock out an ESA letter in literally 15 minutes. Because again, I have the template, I'm just putting in, yes, I believe this. Right. You do not have to put a diagnosis on the letter. So I will always ask the client, would you like the diagnosis on there or would you not? And I, cause again, I think they should have that right. A lot of clients do choose to have their diagnosis listed because they think landlords will take it more seriously. So even though legally they're not allowed to discriminate, we know some people don't always follow the law. So again, I do whatever the client would like.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I was always trained to not put the diagnosis, cause coming from a medical background, mm-hmm. Uh, people would request letters of accommodation all the time Mm -hmm. for the airplanes, for Mm -hmm. their work, you know, whatever it is. And I was always taught, never put the diagnosis, just put something to the extent of strict privacy laws prevent me from giving you further information. But this person saw a therapist or saw the doctor on the state and is continuing care for a, um, for a medical diagnosis of some sort. Yeah.
1: And and legally, that is literally all that's required to say something like that along those lines. And so sometimes landlords will follow up with a couple questions or they'll have their own forms that they'll ask to be filled out. And that's usually not too onerous, but it is, I do think a lot of these are just put in place to be annoying so that people will give up on getting the ESA letter. But uh, at the same time, you're right. And I would encourage people that you, it's not anybody else's business, what your mental health diagnosis is. But if they want that, again, my job is to listen to the client.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, what do we need to include when we write our letter? You mentioned you had a template. Mm-hmm. What are just some general things that we should make sure that we include when we are writing them for the client?
1: Well, again, it's some um, the law is pretty uh, straightforward that it has to have the, the clinician's name and their license number, the state where they're practicing and their address, um, the date that was on there. And then, again, just that in your clinical judgment, you feel like this person has this disability that could be benefited by the animal. That's it. That's really all that needs to be on there.
0: Okay. And I'm thinking, because I know our listeners are going to want to know, can we write this if we are an associate? So so here in California, we are registered as an associate clinical social worker. Mm-hmm. I know that there's other states that have licensed MSW. Do you know if they're able to also write these letters or does it have to be an LCSW, like a clinical... You know, it's
1: that part is kind of unclear and it's state by state. It's um, interpreted somewhat differently, but in general, it's saying that any medical or mental health professional. So if you're the kind of person, if you as an associate can bill, then my guess is you would be able to um, write letters that would stand up in court. So it's really just trying to say, does this person have clinical knowledge and understanding of this person. And and so that's, that's about it. So it's not, but I haven't seen any, it's, it's very expansive as far as who they allow to do it. The, the FHA did not write it in a way to make it exclusionary. They wanted to make it a low burden for people to be able to get this because really there's no harm being done. Again, I think this should just be a natural right for people to be with animals. So, um, you know, it's just, again, a lot of times these uh, landlord lobbies that are trying to block it.
0: Definitely. And can you tell us a little bit about Pause for Patrick? And then you mentioned kind of when we were talking offline that you do a training around ESA letters. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So at Pause for Patrick, if a person is thinking that they might benefit from an emotional support animal, they can go to our website and we are. We talk about focusing on young people. Well, our definition of young people is 26 and uh, younger, but even if a person's 54, but if they have children in their home, we, again, anything where it's going to be benefiting young people or a family with young people in it, we want to help out. And so they go to our website and they fill out the form and then they get assigned a wish grantor. Wish grantor is like a case manager. And anybody who's listening to this, if they would like to volunteer, whether or not they have any clinical experience or whatnot, they could, anyone could be a wish grantor. And what they do is they just listen to the client. We call them seekers and they find out what their needs might be, and then they try to help the process of if they need to get an animal, they might reach out to shelters on their behalf or work with them to find a shelter, or sometimes even a breeder if they need like a hypoallergenic breed. And then Paws for Patrick can provide up to $500 to help acquire an animal and up to $750 for training, you know, basic training, not therapy dog training. Um, And so then the wish grantor will connect that person to a pro bono therapist. And we are definitely always recruiting therapists. Um, So if anybody would like to do that, we're, and as that therapist, when the wish grantor reaches out to me, I will do set up a meeting with the seeker where I will, you know, just find out a little bit about their mental health journey and how it intersects with animals. Typically in one session, I have enough information to be able to write a letter. Some people don't need a letter. And they just need, they still need to have that interview with me for Paws Patrick to verify that they do have a mental health condition, like we're not just giving away free dogs to everyone <laughs> and that, um, that they're healthy enough to have an animal because we would never want to put an animal in a position where it wouldn't be healthy for them. And so, yeah. And so there are different opportunities for volunteering with Paws for Patrick. So far, we've helped people in 31 states, but again, we really, really need clinicians, particularly in California. California is what, the only state that requires that in order for an ESA letter to be valid, it must be written by a California clinician. And the letter is not valid in California for one month from the time that the first meeting with the client happened. So, w- what they're trying to encourage is letters to be written by people who have longer term relationships with the client. There are private organizations like Certipet where you can go online and you can set up an appointment and pay a clinician to get a letter. Now, those clinicians we have no reason to suspect that they would write a letter for someone if they didn't have a condition, but it gives uh, theoretically a bad name to the the idea. So that's why they're really trying to encourage people who um, actually have a longer term relationship with the client to be the ones writing the letter.
0: That makes sense. Yep. That makes sense. So, and with that said, because California is different, we're special over here, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it's always safe to just double check with Mm -hmm. your own state. So for the social workers rise community that's listening, one thing I want to point out is if you are, even if you are pre licensed, call up Pauls for Patrick and see if you can get some clinical experience over there because it sounds Mm -hmm. like great a a great experience for assessment and developing Mm -hmm. that rapport with people and finding resources, case management. So all of these are really great experiences to have on your resume. Mm -hmm. Also, too, if you are licensed in any capacity, Look up the ESA laws for your state, and you know just verify that you're able to actually write the letters. And also seek out pause for Patrick to get more involved and go through their trainings and make sure that you are covering all of your bases. Um, and anything else that we didn't cover, Daniel Magler? No, I, th-
1: I think if any <laughs> if anybody has any questions, literally, you can email me at d m a i g l e r l c s w at gmail.com. And I'm happy to answer any questions or share templates with people who would like to get started in writing ESA letters. If you've written an ESA letter and you just want someone to check it over to make sure, Hey, does this one look okay? You know, redact the name of your client, but send me over what you've got, and I'd be happy to look at it for anybody. And so um, we just want to get more animals with people who could benefit from them because the power of animals to transform people's lives, to make them feel less lonely, to make them feel empowered. They're caring for someone else. It's just really incredible what the power of an animal can do.
0: Yes, yes, definitely. I know um, a few of my clients that I've worked with in the past, they're using their animal as grounding, as mindfulness, Mm -hmm. as preventing that anxiety from getting so out of control. And their animal really gives them another reason to live. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, sometimes that animal might be the only reason Mm -hmm. people choose to stay here and so you know it just speaks to the power that animals do have on our lives and our clients lives and even for you if if you're part of the social workers rights community we have a lot of young people that do listen to the podcast and if you feel like you yourself need an emotional support animal because look our work is hard our work can be traumatic and stressful and cause overwhelm that sometimes we ourselves need that animal to bring ourselves down and to ground ourselves and to, um, to be able to relax and just have fun.
1: Yes, I've got Mariska, the three-toothed Patterdale Terrier, sleeping behind me. She's 13 years old and she she's not too frisky, but just seeing her when I come home every day, knowing that that love is, that unconditional love is there. It's just, it's something that uh, lifts me up and I think uh, it's a benefit to anybody.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'm glad that you shared that because it reminded me of when I had my dog. My dog was named Bella. And I got her when I had graduated grad school and I was working full time and I was just living on my own. And it got to the point where I started getting depressed because all I would do was go to work and then come home and do nothing and binge eat and watch TV and sometimes go to the gym. But ultimately I just found myself in this rut where I wasn't looking forward to going home because I felt like there was nothing there for me. But Mm -hmm. when I got Bella, oh man, I was excited to get home. Like She's excited to see me. I had somebody to hang out with. She got me out of the house. She got me walking. So there was a lot of really positive benefits to me getting my dog as well. So thank you for sharing that.
1: Well, I guess the last thing I'll say is the volunteering with Pastor Patrick has really helped me to work through, again, for me, I was, as I say, I was Patrick's social worker. So the loss of Patrick, You'll know, be able to put something good out in the world. As therapists, often it takes us months to be able to make an impact on someone's life. But when doing this volunteering in a single session, I can make a transformative difference in a person's life. And so the volunteering has just been incredibly healing and uplifting for me as I've dealt with the grief of, su- I've unfortunately had suicide of multiple clients and my nephew and whatnot. And so it's like, as again, we are professionals, but we are also going through it. But that's service work is really helpful and beneficial. So I'd encourage anybody who's looking for service work that isn't too, um, too much of an obligation, that or Patrick can be a perfect fit.
0: Awesome. Well, you heard it straight from right. Mangler. Reach out to them if you're at all interested. Thank you so much for your time.
1: It has been great. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Social Workers Rise If you love this episode, be sure to subscribe and text this episode to a friend. If you want more, there are a few ways we can get to know each other and work together. First, definitely subscribe to the Friday resource email list. The link is in the show notes. And that's where you can learn more about the courses I offer, including Clinical Essentials for the Future Therapist and the Pulse basics for medical social workers. I'll also be sending out occasional tips and resources and other happenings within the social work industry. And for all your clinical supervision needs, be sure to visit risedirectory.com. This is a national directory of clinical supervisors for social workers, and we also provide free resources that you can use within your own clinical supervision. Lastly, if you have more individualized needs, I do offer coaching, individual consultations, and am available for public speaking engagements for social workers and change makers. Lastly, the boring legal stuff, but very important. The information in this podcast is not meant to be a supplement for therapy, professional advice, or clinical supervision. This content is provided as is solely for informational purposes. It is not legal, health, or safety advice. I am not advising you as a therapist. Organizations should engage their own experts to ensure any adopted measures are compliant with applicable laws and standards in their jurisdictions. The opinions expressed by individuals or organizations are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of Social Workers' Rise or Catherine Moore. References to specific products or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendations by Social Workers' Rise.